Thank you, Leslie and team. Hey, we are going to jump right in today because we've got a lot to cover. If you have your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And we are finishing today a series that we began the first Sunday of February called Man vs. Wife, looking at biblical marriage. And today we are going to do something we've never done before at our church. We're going to, uh, we're going to get engaged in, in a little bit of what we call the, the Jesus style uh, of teaching and learning. Uh, Jesus often would, if you read just carefully through the life and through the story of Jesus, he would go and he would preach a message uh, to the masses, and he would come back after that message, and he and his disciples would have a meal together, and they would all ask him questions about what he had just said. Hey, what did you mean by this, and what does that mean, and how exactly should I do that? And we decided that this series, because we've got a passion at our church that... Uh, that our church is characterized by strong marriages. We use a term at our church called biblical marriage. If you're not familiar with that, we have said biblical marriage, according to the Song of Solomon, are a couple who consider themselves best friends and passionate lovers. And I want you to write that down on your sermon notes that, uh, that we gave you today. I've just got a lot of blank space so that you can take a lot of notes today. But I do want you to highlight that phrase, so, uh, and, and hopefully I've said it so much you've got it memorized. Biblical marriage equals best friends and passionate lovers. And as we've taught all month long, we've asked you to ask questions of us about marriage that if we were to have lunch together, you may ask us across the table uh, if we're having maybe chips and salsa someplace and you said, hey, you said this on Sunday, what did you mean by this? Okay, now I understand what the Bible says, but here's where my marriage is. Or I'm single, so what about this? Or I'm coming off a divorce, so what about this? And we had more than 40 questions come in all month long from people in small groups, from people on Sunday morning saying, hey, I, I hear what you're saying, but what about this? So today we're going to try to answer those, what about this? I've asked my wife, Danielle, to join me on stage. You say, how qualified are you to talk about marriage? We're so qualified that we got in an argument between services about who's talked too long for certain questions and what questions we should have answered. So, like, we have so far to go on our marriage that, you know, us sitting up here is, um, you know, kind of like the blind leading the blind sometime, except that I've got a copy of God's words and I know a lot of the biblical answers to what you're asking. So when you say, Christian, what should I do? I'm not going to tell you what I do. Uh, I'm going to tell you what the Bible says you should do and kind of walk through some of those questions. But 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 should be a, a theme verse for the life of every Christian. For every message that they ever hear, every time they read the Bible, every time they hear a worship song, every time God moves on their heart, here's what Paul told the church at Corinth to do. He said, examine yourselves in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith and test yourselves. Don't you realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless... Of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you'll discover that we've not failed the test. Paul says, after you hear any kind of spiritual advice, you ought to look at your own life and say, am I doing that? Should I do that? Can I do that? Paul says, this Christianity thing is a personal thing. It's not just about Ten Commandments written on stone, laid in an Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it's a personal thing. So anytime you hear anything from the Bible, you hear anything on marriage, you hear anything on parenting, you hear anything on money, you should always reflect on God's Word by looking at your own life and saying, am I doing that? And today, that's what we're going to try to do. Uh, we had, like I said, more than 40 questions come in. Uh, in the first service, we, Danielle and I, over the last few weeks, have whittled them down to 17. In the first service, I think we answered six. I mean, there's just so much to talk about. I had people after the 915 service saying, will you answer the ones you didn't answer at 1045 and then post both of them online so we can hear answers to more of the questions. So we're not going to do that. I'm going to give them in the order of, of what I thought was, was real important 
um, from what we have studied throughout the month, but we'll try to go a little quicker. We'll try to include a few more questions, but we'll start kind of easy, uh, just so Danielle and I can ease into answering questions, so you'll see the flow of, of how today will go, um, and, and we'll start lighthearted, and then we'll get a little deeper. Now, you had to be here last week to get this question, but this is literally a question that was put on a card and handed in at the end of the service. Um, if you were driving down Ward Road and the old lady that slaps your butt was broke down on the side of the road, would you pick her up or would you leave her? Um, if you were here last week, you heard me talk about seven signs of an affair. And what's really weird is last week I was in India. I, I, in India, I, I preached through video. Um, some of you are wondering, Christian, why did you preach through video? Because I planned my messages about six months in advance and I had planned that message before I knew that I was going to India. And I really believe that that the messages that God gives me, I feel like I should give. And I thought, you know, God, I, now I know I'm not going to be here, but I feel like you wanted me to give this, so I, I will be obedient and figure out another way to do it. Uh, but it's interesting because the questions, I had more emails about last week's message than any other mer- message in the series. Um, I had divorced people emailing me saying, Christian, all these things were present in my marriage, and I did not realize how dangerous they were. Uh, man, I wish I'd have known that 20 years ago. Um, I had young couples say, man, both of us have so many unhealthy relationships in our life. Thank you for helping us understand what an unhealthy relationship looks like. But I had several husbands and wives that sent emails with kind of this thought. Um, My husband or wife is walking on thin ice, and basically, thank you for showing me um, how to hold them accountable. And here's why I started with this question. Um, Because the thought of last week, seven warning signs of an affair... Um, I didn't give that to help you build a prison for your marriage. Uh, You know, there are two kinds of walls that you can build, right? One kind of wall keeps people in, um, and that's a prison wall. Prison wall doesn't let anyone out. Another type of wall keeps dangerous things out. This marriage protection plan that I talked about was to be a wall that keeps dangerous things out of your marriage. Um, To answer this question, if I'm driving down the road and a lady's broken down on the side of the road, will I pick her up and take her somewhere? The answer is no. Um, you say, why is that? Because I'm a pastor. It's not healthy for the people in our church. It's not healthy for my marriage. It's something I've committed to Daniel. I, I won't do. I just don't spend time with women alone. Uh, you'll, you'll never see me eating in a restaurant alone with a woman uh, who's not my wife. You'll never see me driving in a car. You'll never see me uh, taking a walk. You'll never see me having coffee. I just don't do that. As a matter of fact, if Danielle and I are eating lunch with a female um, at lunch and Danielle gets up to use the bathroom, I'll get up to use the bathroom too. Uh, because I have had people, unfortunately people are nosy, unfortunately people are gossips, uh, and I've had people call our church and say, hey, I saw so-and-so pastor uh, at so-and-so with, with a woman who's not his wife. What, what's going on there? So I have to be careful for the sake of our church and for the sake of our people. But, but a marriage protection plan is nothing more than basically a, a, a set of boundaries that protects what can become very damaging um, in your life. In Song of Songs 2.15, what we studied last week, Solomon called them little foxes. He told his wife, hey, what are the little foxes? What are the things that could ruin our marriage? And let's make sure we build a wall to keep those out before they get in. Uh, we traveled to India with a team of people. Our luggage, I don't even know where it is. It's probably still in Germany somewhere. We got kind of derailed on our flight from India to Chicago and in Germany we ended up in Berlin instead of Frankfurt and by the time we got to Frankfurt our bags didn't get on but they told us when we went they said hey make sure and purchase locks and lock all your bags which I never do when I'm traveling in America and they said if your bags in a place like India get there ahead of you or they come after you um, they said the Indian people in the airport will just open it and we'll just take all your stuff so make sure you lock it up now on the way there we didn't need locks because nothing happened but on the way back 
I have no idea where my luggage is, and I'm, and I'm glad that it's locked. That's kind of how a marriage protection plan works. It, it's something that, um, that protects your marriage in case of an emergency. So I want you to know, I, I did not give you these, this list of things to build a prison for your spouse and to legalistically hold them accountable for the rest of your life, but to give you some talking points of understanding what unhealthy relationships look like and making sure you don't have those in your life. The key word that Christian said there, and I'd like you to write it down on your notes, is the word boundaries. Um, One thing that we all laughed about, those of us who are in India, is when you're driving there, it's just total chaos. I think somebody in our trip compared it to the video game Mario Kart. It's just like everyone's going everywhere at the same time. And in America, we're so used to a nice, organized system of driving. Although I did think I would be a very good driver in India. Um, But, you know, I was thinking that when we got home last night and we were driving home from the airport, you know, we have the white lines, we have the yellow lines, and they're just boundaries that are set up for our safety. The government is not saying you can't drive, but they're saying if you're going to drive, here's some boundaries that are going to keep you safe. Boundaries in our marriage are the very same way. You need to sit down together as a couple and establish boundaries. So for Christian and I, you know, we don't go to lunches with people of the opposite sex by ourselves. Um, We don't spend time counseling members of the opposite sex by ourselves because those are just boundaries that we've established. But everyone in their relationship needs to establish uh, their own boundaries. And I think it's also really important to say this. When we establish boundaries, I am not there to police Christian, but I am going to police myself. And so I think it's very important when you establish those boundaries to not nag the other person, but just to spend time focusing on kind of guarding your own heart in your own self and not just um, constantly, oh, remember, you know, don't police your spouse, police yourself, and then just pray. And let me say this. Here was another question that came in on the same topic. My husband has most of the marriage foxes in our marriage, but he doesn't think it's a problem because he isn't actually cheating. Uh, What do I do as a wife? Do I leave? Do I pray? Uh, I can only change or control my own behavior. Listen, unhealthy um, means unsafe not unspiritual. You're, you may not be in sin if you have a, someone of the opposite sex that you have coffee with every now and then at work or you're Facebook friends with someone or you have a female or a male that you hang out with. I'm not saying you're in sin. I'm just saying it's not safe. So what we talk about in, in, in the marriage protection plan is what's ultimately most safe. So I, I don't, don't be condemned. Don't leave your spouse. Just be aware of it. And together... Create a plan that gives you both comfort and, like Danielle said, then police yourself. But it's not just, uh, when we talk about boundaries, um, it's not just with, with the opposite sex. Here was a really interesting question that came in during the course of the series. Uh, Christian, how do you keep struggling relationships with in-laws or parents out of your marriage? Um, now, this is going to be interesting for Danielle and I to answer because both my mom and dad and her mom and dad can get on and listen to what we're getting ready to say about relationships with in-laws. So it's interesting. But I I do want to say this. Boundaries must be set up in relationships with all your family. Uh, Whether they're unhealthy or not, you you have to set boundaries. Remember what Moses said in Genesis 2.24. He said, for this reason, a man and woman will leave their families and they will become one. It's important in a relationship that together you talk about What boundaries are we going to have? Can your family just show up at your house at any time? Um, Do you find yourself, instead of spending time with your wife and kids or your husband and kids, talking on the phone with your mom or dad or your sister all the time? 
is there's so much pressure every year to go everywhere at Thanksgiving and everywhere at Christmas and everywhere at the 4th of July and everywhere at Memorial Day that you look back at your life and you say, you know what, we've never had a family vacation just with our family. We don't have money to do anything extra or I haven't had time to clean out the garage or I never feel like I have any downtime because I'm, running, I'm being run ragged by my family. You have to set up boundaries. And the way to set up boundaries with your in-laws and your outlaws and your parents is just to do this. Sit down at the beginning of the year and say, okay, here's what we know we're going to be expected to do. What will we do? Create a plan. Communicate it to them far in advance. You know, don't call your mom the day before Thanksgiving and say, we've decided not to come this year, or she may stuff a turkey leg right down your throat, and, and it would all be over right then. But just let your mom know, hey, um, this year we're going to do this. Instead, at Christmas, we're going to, here's the weekend we can come. Last year, Danielle and I ran ourselves ragged at Christmas time, trying to um, basically appease both of our families and do all our church ministry. And we said, this year, we're not going to do that. So we looked at our schedule and said, here's when we can visit one set. Here's when we can visit another. And you know what? It spans a whole month, not just the 10 days around Christmas. So set up boundaries, talk about them, communicate them. But you have to realize your family, especially if you have kids, is your family. Uh, you're not an immediate part of your mom and dad's family anymore, according to Genesis 2.24. You've left that and your your own family. Yeah, and one thing I'd like to say about that, you should never speak an ill word of your spouse to your parents. Um, for, for those of us, that might be hard. We might be very friendly. Our mom might be our best friend or our dad might be our best friend. But you set up an unhealthy um, situation in that, in that, a long time after you've forgiven your spouse, your parents or your sisters or your brother might not. They're going to remember that. And next time you have a problem with your spouse, you're saying, well, remember that time he did this? And it's just very important to set up a boundary that you have agreed together that you will not talk bad about your spouse to your families, and you'll not open the door to allow your families to talk bad about your spouse. And by the way, and this might be uncomfortable for some of you, so uh, I apologize in advance if I'm going to cause conflict. But the person to ask if you are overly attached to your family is your spouse. Just ask them. Um, hey, do you think that I spend too much time uh, with my mom and dad or with my siblings? Or, you know, do you ever feel like I don't have time for you or the kids because I'm so engaged with my family? And just let them share their heart with you and, uh, and be honest. Um, next question. And, and I thought I would, um, I thought... I would start with Danielle and I by giving me one really easy question and by giving Danielle one really easy question. And I almost threw this question out because when I read it, I thought, I don't know. Uh, here's the question. And remember, these questions don't have names on them, so I don't know who wrote this. A rather personal question um, that was asked in a wide-open format. Here, here's the question, very simple. Why doesn't my wife think that I love her? I read that and I thought, how would I know? I don't know who you are. I don't know how, who your wife is. I don't know what's going on. You know, I read that and I thought, that's a great question and not one I can answer. And I thought, you know what? No, I'm going to put this in because this is what we're trying to teach. Um, if, I don't know who asked this, but I would say this. Why doesn't my wife think I love her? Um, the only person who can answer that question is her. And you need to ask her. You need to sit down when you have time to listen and you need to say, I don't feel like you think I love you why? Because she is the only one that can answer that question for you. You might write down the reference, Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 15 through 17. Jot that down on your notes. Because Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 is where Jesus gives us rules for Christian communication. And here's rule number one for Christian communication. Talk directly to the person you have an issue with. 
Unfortunately, we don't keep that in the church. We don't keep that in marriage. We don't keep that at our job. If I have a problem with him, I tell her. If I have a problem with her, I tell them. We never actually talk to the person that there is an issue with. Yet Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus said, if there's ever a problem with anyone, go to them and ask them what's going on. Maybe the most important thing you can learn out of this entire series is to communicate with your spouse. Don't communicate with your brothers and sisters about your spouse or your mom and dad about your spouse or your friends at work about your spouse or your small group about your spouse or your pastor about your spouse. If you have a question of your spouse, why, why don't you think I love you? Ask them. And then remember, communication is two things. It's speaking and listening. Shut up and let them listen. It appears that you don't feel like... Shut up and you listen. Yeah, shut up and you listen. You're right. Thank you. So glad that you have a microphone on the stage to correct me. Um, So, speak to your spouse. So that's my easy question. Why doesn't my wife think I love her? Here's Danielle's easy question. Um, And this actually came in the first week of our series. Is there such thing as too much sex in marriage? (laughs) Do you like that? I do like that, yes. I started sweating a lot in the last service when he asked this one. Um, Aren't you glad this is your easy question? Yeah, thank you. You're um, welcome. There's a verse in the Bible that says that the marriage bed is undefiled. And so I think God wants us to, date, to take great pleasure in our freedom to express each o- ourselves to each other sexually. You know, it's funny because the whole time we're young and we're dating, it's like you can't keep your hands off people. And that you was always true want of you. to. Yes. <laughs> Amen. You always want to you know, have sex, and you're told no, 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 and then we get married, and then all of a sudden, it's like there's no sex drive. Um, I think it's really important, uh, especially for ladies in here, to realize the importance um, that your husband sees in you having a good sexual relationship with him. I think a lot of women are slightly naive to the fact that this means a lot to your husband. Um, there's a book that I'd really like you to write down that has a great chapter in there all about your sex life, and it's called For Women Only. It's by Shanti Feldham, and she actually went and interviewed a thousand men and asked them about their sex life, and she has some amazing quotes in there from some of the men, but basically, ladies, I think we don't realize how much a um, strong sexual intimacy in our marriage actually builds our husband up. Um, one man in, it, in that book described that he felt like he could conquer the world if he had a healthy re- sexual relationship with his wife. So I think that's something that needs to be a priority and needs to be on your radar. If it's weeks or months since you've expressed um, yourself sexually together with your husband, that's a problem, and you need to address that. Um, you know, I think there are um, some unhealthy sexual things that can go on potentially in marriage, If there's a case where there might be some sex addictions in your marriage or some things that you have to break, I don't want to minimize that either. I think it's very important that if you've struggled sexually, that you take time to see a Christian counselor together. Um, We have a lot of couples in our church who've struggled with pornography or they've struggled with having multiple partners before they married their spouse. And a lot of times we bring a lot of baggage into our marriage, and the person who pays the most for that baggage is our spouse. So it's very important that you not ignore things um, sexually that are struggles for you, but have open communication. And um, Chris and I have actually talked, um, because last February was very exhausting, because it was our first series that we did um, on marriage, and it was actually really good. We had never, as a couple, really sat down and taken a lot of time to communicate about our sex life. 
and it really opened a lot of doors for us, and, you know, I think it's improved a lot of things in our marriage, and I think a lot of times we're embarrassed to talk about these things, but it's the most important thing um, that you could probably do for your marriage. So um, I would encourage you to make that a priority, to talk together and to seek help if you need help. Um, I know a lot of ladies um, at our marriage retreat, we talked a lot about sexual abuse. There's mm -hmm. a lot of people in here who have probably, I think the statistic was one in three or one in four people have been sexually abused. And a lot of times that prevents a uh, good sex life with your husband. So I would encourage you, if you have been sexually abused and if you have not seen a uh, Christian counselor, make sure that you make that a priority to do that. Yeah, and here's a question that I don't know the history behind it, but I, I, I will answer it for you biblically. I love my husband, but I'm not interested in sex. What do I do? You know, that's a really good question. And it's, it's, a, it's a question and a conversation I have with spouses from, uh, from time to time when, when I talk with married couples. Um, the Bible says to do this. I, I, I don't want to give you my opinion. But remember when we talked about sex and marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5, if you want to jot this down. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. Remember Paul said the, in marriage a wife's body sexually is not her own. It's her husband's. A husband's body is not his own. It's his wife. Paul says sex and marriage is given to you to serve your spouse. So let, let me state this question again and just talk you through it biblically. I love my husband, but I'm not interested in sex. What do I do? Your sex drive and sex life is not dependent on your interest, according to the Bible. It's dependent upon your spouse's interest. So if you're not interested in sex, but you want to serve your spouse, and you say, hey, um, you know, what do you feel like your needs are sexually? If they say, I'm not interested either, well, God bless you. Although 1 Corinthians 7 says to not be sexually active in marriage is to bring tremendous temptation into your life. It actually says you're wrong if you're married and you never have sex. That's the Bible. That, that's not me. That's Paul. Um, so I would say if you're not interested in sex, one, you need to figure out why. Um, we've talked to a lot of couples it's not pleasurable for them. We've talked to a lot of couples there's a lot of humiliation and shame because of their past. Uh, we've talked to many couples that it's physically painful. One question we got from a small group was sex is physically painful. What do we do? Listen, sex is not intended to be physically painful. That's not the way the body is structured. If it's physically painful, you need to discuss with your spouse why that is. And if it continues to be physically painful, you need to see a doctor because something physically is not right. There's a great book on sex and marriage called Intended for Pleasure that's all about God's desire and plan for Christian couples in the sexual relationship. And some people, um, listen, we, we were in India last week where, uh, you know, the culture is very, very modest. Uh, and one of our couples, Trey and Ashley Allen, we had a couple with us named Prince and Rexta, who just got married on February 1st. Uh, and they were our translators everywhere that we went, an awesome young Indian couple. And one night at dinner, in this very modest culture that doesn't talk about anything sexually, Trey and Ashley are telling him about the sex challenge that I gave before <laughs> we left. And I mean, you could see their dark Indian skin blush red. It was like, oh my gosh. And Trey said, you should ask him. So he's like, you know, Pastor Christian, tell me about this message. And I said, Prince... I don't know that it's appropriate to tell you here, but, you know, here's, here's the basic concept. Here's what we did, um, and when I get home, I'll, yeah, I'll send you more info on it. And he said, we don't talk about sex here. We don't know, we don't know sex here. And it was funny because we took a 24-hour plane ride basically home, and when I got home, I had a Facebook message from him saying, Pastor, can you send me now the message on sex that you preach? You know, and I emailed him. He was like, Prince, here's the link, man. Tell Rex to I'm sorry. Uh, you know, because it's like... We don't learn in culture, and maybe it's just, it's just simply 
um, a matter of you've, you've not learned how to have sex pleasurably with your spouse because of the discomfort of talking about it, the discomfort of the physical act, uh, not feeling freedom to say, I don't like that, I do like this, not feeling freedom to go to a doctor and say, I really, I want to be sexually intimate with my spouse, but it, you know, I, I don't like it right now, it's really painful. Uh, but the question is, uh, I'm not interested in sex, what do I do? Your interest, your, your sex life and marriage is not dependent upon your interest. According to 1 Corinthians 7, it's dependent upon your, your spouse's interest, which is why those things should be discussed and brought out. And I want to tell you this, if there's some reason that you're not able to be sexually intimate, um, maybe it's past abuse, maybe it's, there's just a, a, a spirit of depression over that, maybe there's physical pain, you owe it to your spouse to tell them why, because if you just leave them hanging and they think you're not attracted to them or you don't love them or you don't want to give yourself to them, that can create some deep, deep bitterness in marriage. So communicate well and then go see a counselor, go see a doctor, call one of your pastors, and we'll walk you through this because according to 1 Corinthians 7, this is, this is not a healthy marriage relationship uh, where you don't have sex. Yeah, and um, there's one more resource I'd just like to give quickly. For the ladies out there, there's a great book called The Sexually Confident Wife by Shannon Eldridge, and it's really a good resource that I encourage you to use. And I think, you know, a lot of marriage, you know, Chris and I are committed um, to having a great marriage, and there will never be a time that we actually arrive, like, but we're going to make it our lifelong study to have a great marriage. And so you have to put some work and some effort into your marriage. And a lot of times you have to put work and effort into being a great lover for your spouse. Uh, this was a great question. Uh, the first Sunday of our series, I talked about how two people become one by spending um, slow, uh, uh, slow, purposeful time together, conversations. And we challenged our people to have regular date nights. And here's a question that came in that week. Uh, Christian, what if we don't have time and money to go on dates? That's, that's really a great question. And I would think that anyone in today's culture, especially if you have young kids or you have a, a, a job that keeps you busy, um, you're going to say, I look at my life now and I don't know where I would have time to go on a date. I don't know how I would have money to go on a date. But if you remember going back to that message, th this is a question that is, is a person who's saying, how do I fit dating into my life? Not... How do I reshape my life around dating my spouse? Um, how, you know, how do you have time and money to go on dates? Well, you need to figure that out. But I want to I tell you this. Danielle and I, uh, you know, we, we're big Dave Ramsey financial peace people. Uh, we, when we get paid, take cash out. We put it on, in envelopes. We have, an, we have an envelope in my office that says date on the front, and we pay that date envelope just like we pay our bills. Why? It's a priority. Uh, before we see how much money we have left at the end of the month, we have invested in enough money to go on dates during the month. You say, well, how am I going to have enough time to go on a date? Well, you might have to rearrange your schedule. Danielle and I did not always have a weekly date night. Say, why? Because there was no time. Um, there was time, but we didn't have time in our schedule. I used to play in a weekly golf league. I don't do that anymore. Uh, I used to play slow-pitch softball every week. I don't do that anymore. Uh, I used to watch Monday Night Football religiously. Nothing interrupted that. I don't do that anymore. My son, at one point in his life, played four sports. During the course of the year, I was the head coach on every sports team. I don't do that anymore. He plays two now, and I'm the assistant coach on both of those. We've had to reshape our life. We've had to make sacrifices. We've had to look at our life and say, we don't have time for a date night. However, if this is really important, we need to, and this is what Daniel and I do now. Every Sunday, we sit down and say, when are we going to go out on a date this week? And we make that the first thing that we put on our calendar 
not the last. Because if it's the last, the truth is you won't have time. And if you wait to see if you have any money left over, you won't have money. So I would encourage you, just like you pay your electric bill, set up a date bill. And every time you get paid, pay yourself to go on a date. And you don't have to pay yourself a lot of money. I told our early servant, Daniel and I have in our food allowance for dates, $25 a week. So $100 a month. We can go to Chick-fil-A six or seven times, or we can go eat a really nice meal at Hula Hands once. But we know every month we have $100 to go out on a date and eat food every month. Every week, $25 goes in that deal. So we've been gone in India. We haven't been on a date the last two weeks. Guess what? We got 50 extra bucks to go do something nice because we, we haven't spent it yet. But we, we set aside time, we set aside money, and we do it intentionally. Write this reference down, Luke 14, verses 28 and 29. Jesus made a great statement that I believe applies to dating in marriage in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 and 29. He said, what man would set out to build a tower without counting the cost to see if he can finish it. Jesus basically said this, who's going to try to do anything without making sure that they succeed long term? If you are married, you need to make sure you succeed long term by setting up regular dates in your life now. Figure out where the money comes from, figure out where the time comes from. Might have to reorganize your life a little bit, but it's worth it if it's a priority for you. Yeah. You want to speak to that at all? I just think boundaries and priorities are two words that you're going to see a lot in marriage, and so keep those at the forefront of your mind. Um, here's, here's a question that goes hand in hand with that. Um, Christian, if, the emotional, if my emotional connection is not with my spouse and we are not communicating, is the marriage salvageable? Uh, I, I, I would say a couple different things. Let me read that again for you. If my emotional connection is not with my spouse and we are not communicating, is the marriage salvageable? Um, salvageable, yes. Sustainable, no. If you continue like that, you're not going to be mar married very long. Um, right now, you're not happily married. You will not be married at all if this continues. So salvageable, yes, of course you can save your marriage. But sustainable, no. Something has to change. Uh, and in Ecclesiastes 4.9, you ought to jot that down. You can memorize this verse today because the first half of it is very simple. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says this, two are better than one. We see that with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And here's what that means. No one is set up to live life on their own. You know what happens if you're going to go through a divorce? You're going to connect to someone who's going to help you get through that divorce. If your marriage ends, eventually you will reconnect to someone and perhaps start dating again, perhaps try to get married again. You are not meant to be by yourself, so eventually you will partner with someone else. So here's what I would say. If your emotional connection is not with your spouse and you're not communicating... Start emotionally connecting with your spouse and start communicating. It'd be easier for you to begin to date your spouse and try to fall in love again with your spouse than to just trash it all and start all over again. I heard the most interesting comment I've ever heard in my life talking to our new Indian friends who I, I know four Indian couples now pretty well on a personal basis. All of them have had arranged marriages. None of them fell in love and got married. Their, their, dad, you know, their dad said, you're going to marry her, and her dad said, you're going to marry him. And the Indian couples that I've met, most of them met for the first time at their engagement ceremony, which is like a wedding. The, the pastor comes, they each get an engagement ring, and it's very official, and then within six months to a year, they're married. But I asked one of these couples, because I was just curious, we were eating lunch, and I said, like, how does this work? Um, how is it, you know, is it weird getting engaged to someone that you've never met? Is it weird getting engaged to someone you've never talked to? Is it weird getting engaged to someone that you've never been on a date with? And he said, well, that's just kind of how we do it in our culture. He said, but once we get engaged, um, we begin to talk for hours at a time. 
and we begin to try to spend time together on the weekends. Um, and once we get engaged, we try to get to know each other. And I said what maybe many of you would say. I said, well, why? And he said this. He said, well, since we're going to be married, we should try to fall in love. And I thought, what? Since we're going to be married, we should try to fall in love. Now, here's the song we sing as kids. Danielle and Christian sitting in the tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes. Second comes. That's not the way it happened in the Bible. Adam and Eve were married before they were in love. And when you look at most cultures around the world, marriage comes first, and then the person you're married to, you learn how to love. We're the only culture that says, if I love you enough, I'll get married. And then as soon as I don't love you, I'm out. I want to say this. If you're married and not emotionally connected to the person you're married to, since you're married, you might as well try to fall in love with them. Since you're married, you might as well try to fall in love. This is why dating is so important in marriage. Spending time is so important in marriage. Salvageable? Yes. Sustainable as it is? No. So you should try and work to change a few things. One thing I'd like to say about that, you know, a lot of times we fall in love a certain way. We have fun together. We have activities we like to do. And then we get married and we get busy and we have financial pressures and we have all these bills to pay. And then we have children and life just gets busy. And a lot of times we think we fall out of love because we've forgotten how we fell in love in the first place. So it's really important that you remembered how to, how to have fun together and how to enjoy each other. And then also I'd like to say another boundary that you should have is you really need to guard yourself emotionally. Most affairs are emotional affairs before they're sexual affairs. It's very important for you to guard your heart and to guard your mind against having an emotional affair with someone else. And I like to be really honest um, with a lot of the ladies in here. Um, I think a lot of times we think, oh, my husband is not romantic anymore. He's not this or that. And so we find other ways to fill that emotional void in us. And a lot of times we read, you know, romance novels or books that have a lot of sexual content. And it creates in our life a fantasy and an unreal expectation that your husband is never going to be able to meet to you because that's a book, it's a story, it's fiction, it's fantasy. It's very important to guard your heart. Guard the kind of TV shows you watch, the kind of movies you watch, the content that you allow in your life that makes you think that what you have is, is not good enough. And a lot of time what you have is real, so work at it and form those emotional contacts with your spouse by having fun and enjoying each other the way you did when you fell in love. Yeah, I, I say at every wedding that I've ever done, several people in here I married, Whatever it took for you to fall in love, it will um, take for you to stay in love. Marriage is not the finish line of falling in love. It's the beginning. Uh, it's the starting line. Uh, I, I was talking to one of, our, uh, one of our leaders in India, and I said, you know, people don't get married. You are married. You have a wedding, but you don't get married. Getting married is not a one-time event. Being married is an everyday thing. You don't get married. You are married. Today, you are married, and you have to work at it today and tomorrow. You are married, and you have to work at it tomorrow and the next day, and on and on and on. That's how marital relationships And I think works. what's so funny, too, is that, um, you know, selflessness is the greatest component of having a great marriage. You know, I married this crazy sports nut, and I remember one time, you know, he watches ESPN all the time. So I had to decide Not early. all the time. All the time. Like... Any of you ladies out there, like you're seeing him watch it again for like the third time in the row, and it's the same thing every time? Not all the time. Okay, all the time. But I had to decide. 
but see how that works? That's how it happens at home too. They know. Eventually, I'll give up. Um, Go ahead. You but win. I think all the time. Early in our marriage, I decided. You know, sports is a passion of Christian. Um, it's maybe wasn't one of mine, so I can either choose to join him in something he really likes to do, or I can ignore it. And I'll never forget one or time. Or she can choose to be single. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I, I'll just just kidding. That. I did um, not mean that. Forgive me, Lord Jesus. Yes. Amen. So I remember one time something was going on in a football season, and I remember I randomly brought up we were hanging out together about some stat, about some guy on some team, and he looked at me really seriously. He's like, I love you so much right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I mean, I like to say Christian learned how to go see musicals with me, and I'm sure he just loves that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so we have learned to do things that the other person enjoys. Yes. We were watching the Lakers one time, and they were at a, on a crazy pace, and Danielle looked over at me, and she said, they're not going to be able to keep up this pace of play, are they, if they keep pressing the whole time? And I said, that's the most romantic thing you've ever said to me in your entire life. <laughs> Thank you. I, I do over and over and over again. Um, it's, a, it's a great question. A great question. Uh, Christian, I'm recently divorced and madly in love again and want to make sure I don't allow selfishness to enter my new relationship. Uh, what does God say about remarrying? Um, it's interesting because some of the greatest uh, love stories in the Bible uh, are second marriages for some. Ruth and Boaz. Boaz was her second marriage. Um, Abigail, uh, who was married to an idiot that, thank the Lord, God took home early, married David, and David was her second marriage. But David and Bathsheba uh, actually met in sin, but got married and had a son, and uh, we see had a kind of a wonderful love story together. So we see lots of second marriages in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, um, Jesus said, listen, a lot of people get divorced for anything. You shouldn't get divorced except for marital unfaithfulness, and you shouldn't marry someone who hasn't been divorced because of marital unfaithfulness. But there is clearly in Scripture not only lots of people, but permission for second marriages. But here's what I want to say. Some of you are not going to like this, but, but I believe this to be true. I've, I have been a part of a lot of second marriages and the most healthy second marriages that I have seen. We have some of the greatest marriages in our church today are on their second marriage because they learn so much from a failed first marriage. But... The healthiest second marriages that I have seen have these components. And if you were to come to me, uh, and if, if we had this exact question to talk about over, over a coffee somewhere, um, here's what I would say. How do, how do I know as, when I'm divorced? How do I know when I'm ready to be married again? Uh, I'd say step one, your, your heart has to be right with God. You've got to be at a place spiritually where you find deep satisfaction in who you are and what God has given you. You, had to have, uh, you have to have come to terms with your past and be looking forward to living for God in your future. Um, here, here's a sign that your heart is right. Uh, and again, I, I don't know that I would marry anyone in a second marriage if this wasn't the case. And I've had this conversation with some people sitting in this room. Um, you know, I, I've asked people who, who have had a failed first marriage. When they say, I want to get married again, I say, I won't marry you until, me, until you can tell me um, what you did wrong in your first marriage or what you would have done differently if you could do it again. Because if your past marriage failure only has you pointing at your ex, your future marriage failure will only have you pointing at your next. At some point, there's got to be ownership that I was not perfect, I could have done this better, I wish I'd have done this better. And I'm not saying that in 100% of cases, but in 98% of the cases, there's something you could have done better. 
Uh, I'll ask people before I marry them for the second time to write a letter or send an email to their ex um, telling them that they forgive them for the failed marriage and acknowledging if I could have done it differently, here's what I would have done differently, and I want you to forgive me as well. If you're, th- if you're out there thinking, I would never do that, your heart is not ready to get married again because you still have some bleeding wounds on the inside. Not until you're really settled in what you've come through and you've been able to learn from it and you've been able to heal from it are you ready to give your entire heart to someone else in marriage. Uh, I would say once you've done those things, I would talk to wise Christian friends and I would say, hey, how do you think the condition of my heart and my life is? And I would recommend that anyone who's been through a divorce have gone through a little bit of Christian counseling so a Christian counselor can lay out your spiritual next steps for you. Pastor Ryan and I are not trained professional counselors. Um, I'm a pastor. Uh, I've got a lot of pastoral education. I got my bachelor's and a couple masters in ministry stuff, but I'm not a trained counselor. So I would recommend people see a trained counselor. And one day at our church, when we have the means, we will hire a trained professional counselor so that our people don't have to pay to see a counselor, but they can see the counselor on staff because that's what they do for a living. I, I believe in Christian counseling. Danielle and I go to Christian counseling. Um, I wish we went more. It's very healthy. So that, that's what I would recommend if you are a divorced person and you say, how do I know when I'm ready? I believe these are the steps I have seen for the people who are most ready for their second marriages. A um, couple great questions here uh, about pornography um, and fantasy that I, that I want to give you. And I realize we are bumping up close to time. I'm going to try to run through these and let Danielle comment on it, and then we'll be done. Christian, is there a way to stop fantasies? I've immersed myself in prayer in the Bible, but I can't seem to stop living in fantasy. Um, what do I do? You know, scripture, scripture speaks to this man and to so many men who, who have been immersed at some point in time in pornography. The next question I was going to read um, Christian, do you have any thoughts and comments on pornography and its effects on marriage? Seems a largely untouched topic in the church, yet it affects greatly. Um, there's a verse in 2 Peter verse, chapter 2, verse 14. You need to write that text down. Because I believe that describes the generation of men under the age of 45 better than any verse in the Bible. 2, Corinthians chapter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. And Peter says this. Peter said, there will one day be raised up a generation of men who have eyes full of adultery and they can't stop sinning. It's the picture of a man who has, who has witnessed so much sexual immorality that it's all he can think about. He lives in a world where his head continually replacing... That's what Peter said. Eyes full of adultery. Like, if their eye was a television set, it would constantly be broadcasting pornography. They have witnessed and taken part in and seen so much pornography that it is their world now. And, and they can't stop. That's kind of the question I hear, Christian, how do I get that stuff out of my head? Well, you've, you've started, on, you started down the road towards it. And, and let me say this. This is a blanket statement. There should be zero pornography in marriage. Mm-hmm. Zero. Men or women. Teenagers, if you want to take steps now to destroy your marriage in the future, start looking at pornography now. By the way, 40% of all people under the age of 18 consistently viewing pornography right now are females. Not males. So this is not just your sons, moms and dads. You want to destroy your marriage in the future, look at pornography now because you'll create eyes that can't turn at all. So what do I do? Um, Here is what I have done. Some of you have heard my story. In college, I got immersed in pornography. 
I got married in college. Here I am. I'm married. I'm living in a world of pornography. My wife catches me. Two weeks into our marriage, I think everything is just going to explode. Say, Christian, what did, what did you do? Um, step one is I, I did not immerse myself in Bible and prayer first. Step one is I went and told someone. I went and confessed to a trusted friend, man, I struggle with pornography. And as much as I wouldn't like to turn on my computer, as much as I don't think about as much as I'd like to not think about it, as much as I wish I could never see the pictures in my head, I do and I need help. Step one, confession. Step two, accountability. Uh, I want to give you the password to my computer. I want to set up some software on my computer that they have this that will actually email someone everything you look at over the course of a computer. It'll email someone your hard drive every week so they can see what you've been looking at. You can set up software on your phone. You can set up things that will help you. And you say, who should have the passcodes to all that protection software? Your spouse should. So step one is confession. Step two is accountability. Step three and four, I think prayer and the Bible are important. But I believe for helping the fantasies go, um, I believe what you take out of your life is as important, if not more important, than what you put into your life. You know one of the crazy things that, that happened to me once I stopped looking at pornography? But I still had... Uh, eyes filled with adultery from time to time. Uh, I'm a sports radio junkie, and I would be listening to sports radio, and these commercials would come on for strip clubs in downtown KC, and they would give their web address. And I kid you not, for 30 minutes, I would think about going to visit that web address to look at those strippers in downtown KC. And I thought, you know, and I'd watch TV shows that had less than pure content. And I would listen to radios and songs, and I would go to movies. And I'll tell you what, anything that triggered that lust um, would send me on hours long of fantasies. This is while I was in ministry and married and trying to be a good dad. And I realized that for me, more than reading my Bible and praying, I had to remove everything in my life that could put a lustful thought in my head. For me, I'm not saying this is forever, for me, I couldn't listen to any more secular radio. Couldn't listen to the songs, couldn't listen to the commercials, couldn't listen to the... The DJs talking about sexually explicit things. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do that and remove all the fantasies. I quit seeing any kind of movie with any kind of sexual impurity in it at all. Why? Because it would just turn my mind on and it would run forever and ever and ever. We quit watching any kind of TV show that had lewd or sexual content. Even like TV 14 stuff. We just said, no, we're not watching that. Some of our favorite shows we just quit watching because they would put me in a place that wasn't healthy for me. And my wife would be my great, we would go see something or watch something on TV or pass a billboard or be on vacation, and she would ask me, are these things bothering you? Um, do we need to not do that? Should we go sit someplace else at the pool? Should we leave the beach and go to the pool or leave the pool and go to the beach? There's this wide open thought that I, I was this guy. I don't want to live in a fantasy world anymore. I don't want to think about pornography. I don't want to see the pictures in my head. There have been days where I have been the man of Matthew 5 where I thought I'd rather, I'd rather pull out my eyes than look at pornography on a computer screen again. And then all of a sudden I'm sitting at a computer screen looking at pornography thinking, what is wrong with me? I had to get the culture out of my life. More than getting the Bible in, I had to get the culture out. It just triggered too many things with me. So if that's you, man, I would encourage you. Confess to someone you trust, not a bozo. Accountability, help me. Help me get this garbage out of my life. Um, Bible and prayer, yes, but you're going to have to cut off the culture until you're strong enough for it not to lead your mind in a, uh, in a dangerous place. Comment on that as a wife, and then I'll, I'll read our last question and be done. Um, I think it's very important for the wives in here or the ladies in here, especially those of you who are single and who are not married yet. This is something that I was just naive to before I got married. 
I really consider one of my primary jobs as a wife in the house to be a kind of a guardian of my family. Um, I never take, we never go to a movie that I don't first, I'd love you to write this down, movieguide.org. There's actually an app for it, a movie guide app. It's a, by a Christian guy, and I love them because they're not legalistic. I mean, no. they're going to tell you. They see every movie. They tell you exactly what kind of content is it. But we just don't go to movies that have nudity in them. And that's because I care about my husband. I don't want to put him in a compromising position. And not only that, I care about myself. I don't want to put myself in a compromising position. Um, for my children, my kids are not able to just flip through the TV. I have locks and guards on our TV because... I want to protect my children, and our kids, this might shock you, but our kids are all under the age of fifth grade. Our children have already had experiences with pornography. On the internet, at our house or friends' houses. You need to realize this, parents. You cannot be ignorant to this. Unfortunately, our culture is at a place where it is way too easy to access these kind of materials. And I care too much about the young people in our church and in our families. It's your job. It's not their job. It's your job to set up protective measures in your house. Your kids should never be able to just surf the Internet without any supervision. It's very important for you to be the guardians of your house and to set up those healthy boundaries in your house to help protect your family. Because I want my kids to be able to step into their marriages um, with a pure heart and a pure mind so that they're not putting unrealistic expectations upon their spouse because of things that they've seen in the past. Um, ladies, just like I said before, this is one reason I don't read novels that have a lot of sexual content in them. I don't want to create f fantasies in my heart and mind that might be hard for my husband to meet those expectations. So it's all about just protecting yourself and setting up healthy boundaries for your family. Yeah, and I want to say, and we have belabored this point, but I believe this is an issue in marriage. When Daniel and I um, had our first ever 13 years into marriage, our first kind of sex talk after our marriage series last year, uh, you know, we began to talk about, you know, I... I feel like we're not engaged here. Um, it came out 12 years later. There's still really deep scars in Danielle. Um, and she was holding back sexually because of the hurt that she had experienced when I, her husband, was engaged in pornography and loving other people um, on computer screens and TVs more than, more than I loved her. So, again, if this is something you're, man, get it out there, talk about it. Um, but, I, like, I would go to war against this. I have gone to war, and I would continue you to. Last question, I'll answer, answer it pretty simply. Um, Christian, when your spouse does not or refuses to address the problems that we have in marriage, can you call it quits? Uh, the very quick answer to that is not yet. That's what this series is for. If you were to ask the people in our church to grade their marriage between a 1 and a 10, most people would be less than 5. Marriage is not what we expected marriage to be. It's a lot harder. It's a lot busier. It's a lot more pressure and stress. Not many of us are living our fairy tale marriage. But we can pursue a much better marriage than we have. So you say, Christian, it's just not good right now. Listen, what we have taught you will help you move forward, will move forward spiritually. And what I would encourage you to do is, you know, it's March 3rd today. Uh, the year is moving by fast. Next week is daylight savings time. We flip up the clock already at March 10th. It's like, man, what is happening with the pace of life, but I would say, you know what, I'm going to take the rest of this year. Instead of quitting, I'm going to take 2013, and it's going to be the year that I save my marriage. And you say, what do I do if it's not going well, or my spouse is not interested in helping? Well, number one, you pray. Uh, that, that's simple, but, it, but it's not always done. I mean, you like every day get on your knees and say, God, help my marriage. Number two, 
Um, ask other people to pray for you. Mm-hmm. There, is, there is power in people praying for you and over you. Uh, number three, change everything in yourself that you can. Become the perfect spouse in an imperfect marriage. And at the end of that number four, if that's not working, uh, before you decide to call it quits, talk to a pastor, talk to a counselor, um, give it one last shot. Listen, your marriage is worth saving. I promise you that. It's worth saving. And man, if you've learned anything this month, I hope you have learned uh, how important we think marriage is uh, in our church. One thing I just want to end with is... um, I want to be really honest with you. There is great hope for every person in this room to have a fantastic marriage. I remember early in our marriage when we were having struggles, I used to just pray every day and like, God, this is not what I signed up for. And I remember having a lot of doubts that we would never have a great marriage. Um, There's a lot of times that I really fought that. And I just want to tell you this, marriage is a lot of hard work and you have to invest in your marriage. You have to be willing to work at it. But if you do... Um, there's such tremendous fulfillment and rewards. Christian and I can honestly stand before you today and say that we have just an incredible marriage, and we're still working at it. We're still committed to getting it right. And I don't think when we're old and gray someday, we'll still be working at getting better at it. But um, our marriage is so fulfilling to me today. So I want to offer hope to people that are here. If you've struggled with some really heavy issues in your marriage, sexually or with pornography or just fighting or bad communication. There's incredible hope for you in here today. Don't give up. Um, I think we've talked often that we feel like one of the reasons we have such a good marriage today is because we've been through such terrible things. We are so much closer, not because we've always had a great marriage, but because we've been through the really, really hard stuff, and we've come out on the other side so much stronger, so much more free to talk about our problems and our issues with each other, and so much more committed. It's kind of like if we worked this hard to make it this far, how could we give up? We're going to keep working harder. So I want to tell you today that there's tremendous hope here for you today. Jesus Christ, do not forget this. The power of Jesus to heal and to save and to make your marriage something amazing, you cannot, um, you cannot overlook that. Let's fly through these next steps on the bottom of your sermon notes in case we don't talk about marriage again for another year. Number one, establish a regular date night. What do we want you to get out of this series? Establish a regular date night. Number two, schedule a one-night getaway uh, as a couple before June 1, sometime this spring. Put the kids with someone, get a hotel, save some money, get a hotel, um, use rewards points, borrow someone else's rewards points, schedule a one-night getaway as a couple. Number three, learn to fight fair. If you were not here when we went over these lessons in marriage online, you can check out message two from our series. It was on February 10th. Uh, Set and keep intimacy goals so that you keep the intimacy uh, going in your marriage and you keep that satisfaction and that growing close to one another there. Uh, And then finally, create and follow a marriage protection list for your marriage. Listen, man, I want our church to be characterized. When when people talk about Journey Church International, I want them to know that, that we are open to any and every kind of person coming here to find Jesus, regardless of what their past is. We want people to meet Jesus here. I want people to know that we give a lot of money to help hurting people locally in Lee Summit, and I want them to know we support ministry around the world, that we go to places like India and Africa and Israel because we care about helping people and telling people about Jesus. But I want it to be said when someone says, oh, you go to JCI? 
uh, man, every couple I know that go there, they are really close. Like those people have really good marriages. That's one of my goals as a pastor. So I hope this series has been enlightening for you so that you can begin to move forward in some of these things in your life. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name so thankful for your wisdom in Scripture on the issue of marriage. We thank you for the biblical challenge and example of marriage given to us in the Song of Solomon, a couple that refers to themselves as best friends and passionate lovers. And all you taught us through the story of Adam and Eve from the importance of being together one-on-one to the importance of learning to deal with tension to the importance of sex in marriage to last week, the warning signs of an affair. God, your word has taught us so much. And what we've learned today is we've dialogued a little bit. Uh, I pray that we'll go with it and we'll be better. Heal where healing is needed. Uh, Encourage where encouragement is needed. Uh, Lord, give courage to those who are ready to quit, but who will give it another nine months. Um, For those who, Lord, there's been deep wounds in the past, I pray that your love will overcome those. And God, for those who are single and one day going to be married, I pray we've set an, an, an extremely high bar for what great marriage is that they will work to achieve in their life. We thank you for Jesus. He's the only one who makes it possible for us to know how to love someone selflessly. And the advice and guidance that he leads Scripture to give us is just phenomenal. So in Jesus' name, we say thank you and we say help us. We ask all these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.